As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Astonishing Legends would like to thank Quip, Simply Safe, Squarespace, Mint Mobile, and our contributors at Patreon for making tonight's show possible. For tonight's cold open, we're sharing a paraphrased version of notes and corrections to the first part of our series on the Beth Sphere, as provided by a Beth's family member that has been in close contact with Astonishing Legends. We're sharing these corrections in the interest of complete transparency. We're doing that because we know that in their purest form, These stories are much more compelling than the exaggerations that have risen up around them. The notes begin with a reaction to our reporting that the family sought to ensure the sphere with Lloyds of London, which we sourced from the St. Petersburg Times and Associated Press from April of 1974. Quoting that article, Mrs. Betts said she had a policeman stay at the house overnight this weekend to protect the ball and is trying to get it insured through Lloyds of London. Turns out the policeman was a real person, a family member in fact, and as you'll find out in this series, a good man to have around. The part about Lloyds of London, however, complete fabrication. Listen to the response we received from our Betts family source on not only the insurance policy, but the media's initial reaction to our story. We never had the ball insured, not sure we even considered it, And the one huge thing is that our family has never contacted any media whatsoever regarding the sphere. We were first contacted, I think, by the Jacksonville Journal because someone who knew us, and I don't remember who, approached them and told them about the ball and its weird behavior. Shortly afterward, a local reporter spoke to us, and I don't think it was in person, but maybe by phone. Then she did a shoot in her own parking lot at work, tossing a ball valve back and forth to someone and making a comment that the ball was nothing special and maybe we could sell it for pot metal. The ball valve she had was not what we had. Ours was bigger, a reflective, shiny color, and you don't casually toss a 21-pound steel ball back and forth like a beach ball. Tonight, we dive deeper into the story behind the Bet Sphere. And when we're done, you'll know more about it than anyone has in 45 years. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. So the ball gets delivered back to her with something like a big manila folder. She opens the folder and it's x-rays, and they are x-rays that show the inside of the ball. 
so it's the first time we see what we're looking at. Paraphrased from a Betts family member's interview with Astonishing Legends, January 2019. Join us tonight for part two of our three-part series on the Betts Fear. And we're back. I just realized we forgot to say that the past couple episodes, I think. Well, I'm not sure. Well, then how did listeners know we were back? I don't know. They were probably confused. I'm surprised we didn't get any emails. <laughs> we got a little bit of a scoop tonight, didn't we? Yeah. But you I, didn't want to contact her at uh, first. You know what? I'm probably not the best guy for this job. Because even when the research corps finds somebody, which they're getting real good at, uh, yeah. so good at I'm getting a little bit afraid of them. <laughs> we have some people <laughs> on the inside, I think. But even when they find people, it's like I'm satisfied that we found the person. Right. And then I'm like, I don't want to bother them. No, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Because, you know what? It's because of that attitude, though. I think is the reason that we got it, that this person agreed to talk with us in the first place, because we're not out to press anybody's buttons or hound them like a lot of journalists do. And we're not even journalists. So we take it seriously, of course. But with this one, I thought like, well, what's the worst that can happen? We just be polite in our asking. And uh, if they're like, no way, get out of here, we leave it alone. What Forrest is saying here between the lines is that he talked me into sending a request for an interview to this member of the Betts family that we managed to track down. And so... I did. We're so glad that we did that. We've actually become very good friends with, yeah, uh, with this person. Time, yeah, sure. and I think with the family at large who we're communicating indirectly with through our contact. And it's been a really great experience. And it's been exactly what we want our show to be about, which is getting to the truth behind these kinds of stories. Because these legends, these stories, they're real. And what happens is over the years, and especially when you put decades into it, and in some cases when we talk about much older history, it, yeah. it might be even be centuries, things get built up around stories, right. and it's hard to find the kernel of truth. But just because there's a whole bunch of exaggeration that's come downstream of what originally happened, that doesn't mean that there's not something magical and wondrous and strange about the original occurrence. Yeah, we say this a lot because the phrase goes, throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's that uh, Chinese whispers, it's that telephone game. You can't trust any of this. None of this is real. It's like, well, yeah, facts get distorted. Memories get foggy, especially over long stretches of time and decades. But there's always a real story it starts off with. Something usually happens. Sometimes things are made out of whole cloth totally fabricated. And that's sometimes the case, but often there is something weird that happened. The point is, the sphere is there. No, no, and it's that's real. A, yeah. There's a lot of things about it that are really fantastic. The other point about this is there's not a whole lot of articles on this, which makes it fun and unique in a way, but also frustrating to research. There's not a lot to choose from, but it also makes it hard to dig up a story. So a lot of things kept getting repeated because there's not a lot to work with. But a few of the stories in our articles we read, one, I would say, just kind of towards the end gets a little conspiratorial sounding and, and it's a little fantastical because they open the door to like, well, what if this is some huge government conspiracy? And and Scott was laughing about it. Yes. And I then was. we heard a story. It's like, well, that's not too far from the truth, maybe. I don't, <laughs> that, is, that sounds maybe Well, there's a lot of it. it. There were some mitigating factors there. I mean, one right. of the things is with that particular story, I believe there was a suggestion that the family had disappeared well, yeah, and they're all gone. Yeah. Now we're in uh, pretty close contact with the family, so yeah. we know they haven't disappeared. The other stuff that happened to them, which actually hasn't made it into the press and right. which you're going to be hearing about for the first time on Astonishing Legends, that stuff is as crazy and conspiratorial as it gets. Yeah, it's a little wild and it makes you wonder because... 
a lot of people, especially debunkers, will want to throw everything out. None of this can be possible. This is all fantastical. It's crazy. It's a hoax. These people are lying. They're drunk, whatever. They're owls, whatever their problem is. You don't want to believe any of it. And you may not believe some of this. But the idea, though, is that there's stuff that really did happen. For people who aren't familiar with our back catalog, I just want to be absolutely clear that Forrest is making a reference to the Kelly Hopkinsville <laughs> series there. <laughs> just, uh, yeah. We are not casting aspersions on the Betts family. No, no, no. But or owls, the Kelly Hopkinsville or, family. Or but, owls. Or owls. Uh, I have some living outside of my place. I don't want to upset them. They're yes. very nice and protective. But the, <laughs> the fact is that there's something strange that usually happens. Maybe it's misinterpreted. But here, this is pretty clear. This is an object. It wasn't a goblin. It wasn't anything that bizarre. And a lot of people saw it. It made the international news. We've already alluded to this, but what's going to happen tonight is we're going to have a member of the Betts family on the show who has provided us with an in-depth interview regarding what the Betts family went through when all of this stuff went down. And this contact was there. We are protecting this person's identity because... That is something that she has requested and we are honoring. But we can assure you that we have personally verified that she is, in fact, a member of the Betts family and that she does represent the interests of the family with regard to her interactions with us. So as we begin part two of our three-part series and start off with this exclusive interview, something to please keep in mind is that, yes, this is a story about an object, an orb, a steel ball, a sphere. But it's also just as much a story about how people reacted to this fear and how that reaction affected a family. So in essence, it's also a family story with real people, people you could have known. This is because there is only so much, at least to us civilian mortals, to know about the sphere. Now, I believe there are organizations and individuals that know a whole lot more about it but about what the sphere did, how it worked, and what it was supposed to do, and maybe most interestingly, who built it, the public information is actually very limited. But what we've come to know since part one of this series is that we now know a lot more about how a strange device like this affects a regular family, because as we say a lot around here, the part of the story that's just as significant as the unidentified craft or extraterrestrial or bizarre phenomena is how things affect the average human and their families and the people they love and, and care for. And while you may not care as much about the human aspect of stories like these, and it may be a very slim chance something like this will happen to you, keep in mind that it happened to someone. And maybe it was someone just like you. So tonight, much of the story revolves around a main character, a hero that some might say was battling mighty and mysterious forces to keep her family safe while searching for the truth about the Betts sphere. And that person is the matriarch of the family, Jerry Betts. It was mostly she who dealt with the media, the authorities, the government officials, and all the freaks and weirdos who suddenly show up to happenings like these. Dude, I was only five years old. <laughs> I don't know how you got there. They left kids on the Greyhound back then, you know? Well, this was all happening while she was running a small business empire and with multiple children to raise. And also, remember, this story happens in a very short period of time, actually. It wasn't years wasn't a full year. It was actually a few months. Yeah, the most intense part of it was a few months. Even though it unfolded for them and had long-term effects, the crux of it was just over a period of a few months. That's right. Well, and towards the latter half of this story, her husband Antoine was out to sea for his job as a ship's chief engineer aboard a container ship. And that was not a research vessel. <laughs> so that's another no, that's one more correction. that's a correction, yeah, yes. There we you mentioned go. that it was a research vessel in part one. Turns out it was a container ship. And yeah. although you were right about the Scotty part, he was the chief engineer. He was the chief engineer. 
here. <laughs> the point being on that, it's a huge, huge ship. I don't think you can even imagine it if you've never been on one. Yeah. Or just at the port. He's also used to large marine machinery. I mean, very familiar with it. And that's one of the theories that, oh, this thing, well, because of the steel and the type of steel, this obviously came off probably a ship yeah, you or, would or an think, aircraft. You would think that Antoine, who was the father in the family at the time, he would know if it was something related to that. That is one, it, yeah. There's not a whole lot that's more complex in a marine environment than a cargo ship. Exactly. And even as big as one of those ships is, all the stuff that he should be familiar with, yeah, if it was a bowl valve, it wouldn't be that big. We've never seen one that big. So yeah. again, that's another good argument. So pay attention to the details of tonight's episode, because as the facts of the story show, this family was real, and this ball was real, and this event really happened. And while some details may be hazy since so much time has passed, and you may not believe all the descriptions you hear from this family member, remember that this is their family's story. And they are the best source for the truth. Because unlike the other players in this tale, as you will hear, the family has the least to gain from lying about it. It's why they haven't spoken about it publicly for all this time. Also remember that everyone who has actually come into contact with a bet sphere may not believe it's from another world, but everyone definitely thinks it's a lot more strange than just a plain old metal ball. Well done, Forrest. I think that was very well put. So, oh, uh, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> what we're going to do now is we're going to play the first segment of our interview with our contact in the Betts family. We are protecting her anonymity for reasons that will become clear as all these interviews unfold. But right now we wanted to play this segment. And what we're going to do is uh, after we play a certain amount of material, if there's some new questions or things that brings forth, we're going to come back and talk to you a little bit about that. And then we'll come back to the next segment of her interview. The first part of this interview that we wanted to play relates to the matriarch of the family, Jerry Betts, who we talked a little bit about in part one, but we were really only scratching the surface of her character and what she's truly like. So without any further ado, here is the first segment of our interview with a Betts family member about Jerry Betts, who was the person at the forefront of the story when the Betts fear was discovered. Hi, Scott. Hello. We are now recording, so I just want to, uh, first okay. things first, do I have your permission to record this call? You absolutely have my permission to record this call. Okay. I guess my first question for you is, can you tell me if Jerry Betts is still alive, is still with us? She is very much alive. She is a mover and a shaker. She's one of the smartest human beings that I have ever met. And she's one of those people that should have been a statistic. She had three children by the time she was 20. She had the first, I think she was 15, uh -huh. and ended up having six children and started a successful business, ran a trucking company, drove a truck. She would get in a truck back in the 60s and run picket lines when the union would go on strike. And she would pull up to the picket line and say, you're either going to need to shoot me or get out of my way because I've got kids to feed and I need to get these groceries through. Wow. And she was so pretty. They were like, okay, go ahead. <laughs> you know, and- there are photos of her, you know, in an 18 wheeler and she's got on like a little leopard vest and kid gloves and cute little shoes. And she looked very, very much like Elizabeth Taylor. And these guys were just, you know, they were just blown away by her chutzpah at the time. So she was a mover and a shaker. She was in a bad marriage that was very abusive and she saved up money 
at a time when I think her husband was making 50 cents an hour or something like that and feeding three kids. Oh my gosh. She saved up enough money that the trucking company that he owned, that he ran into the ground, she bought it from him oh. and turned it into a hugely successful company. And she's a multi-multi-millionaire now because she's smart and she's honest and she's very, very godly. She's driven by her faith. She hangs out with engineers and designs things. She never finished high school. She ended up getting essentially what a GED would be. She went to a college, took the entrance exam, and they made her take it again because they thought she cheated because they had never seen anybody score so high based on her background. She took it again in front of them, killed it. And this was a very prominent college at the time. And she went and got into engineering classes and things like that. And she just loved it. Her youngest son got injured while she was in college. He fell out of a tree onto a car and the car antenna went into his head and he developed cerebral palsy from that. And she had to drop out of college, but she had a 4.0 average. She was just amazing. And this is somebody who didn't finish high school in in Georgia. Wow. So what's her background? Is her family from Georgia? Originally, her dad was a tobacco farmer in Georgia and they were very poor. There were 13 kids. Her mother died when she was nine of a massive stroke. Her father remarried. Her father died of a heart attack and she was home alone with him when he died. And she ran through the woods to get a doctor. He died of a heart attack when she was 15. And she had a a rough family life. She had some older brothers that were not the kindest of people. And they used her in that they made her work and she had to pay rent and she took care of their kids. And so essentially she got married just to get out, you know, to get away and have somewhere to be. And you know, that's not always the best option. And she had three kids, like I said, by the time she was 20. So she would always work two or three jobs. And if she went to a job and the job was something she didn't know how to do, she would go find the information, go home and study and come back and do it better than anybody. She seems really amazing. She is amazing. There was a time that in her kitchen one night, she brought a bunch of students from Jacksonville University who were engineers and they were young kids and she was a great cook. So they all came to her house to hang out and have dinner. And they ended up designing a machine that with no electricity and no chemicals could make water in third world countries, like 99.9% pure. And it was a renewable system. It wasn't like you were changing all these filters right. and things. And they came up with that in her kitchen in the middle of the night. Here she is, 30 something years old, and a bunch of 19, 20 year old engineers. And she's put them to task and they came up with this machine and it's used It was used for years and years down in Colombia to help purify some of the water for people down there. So it's pretty interesting. Yeah, I'm dumbfounded. (laughs) I'm not even smart enough to ask the right questions about that. That's really amazing. (laughs) So the husband that she got the trucking company for, he preceded Antoine? Yes, he did. Okay. Antoine was her knight in shining armor because she had been through a really bad situation. He fell crazy in love with her. And in fact, her husband was an electrician that would come and work on the ship that Antoine worked on. He was a chief engineer for a container company, American, I think it was called, uh, I can't even think of the name of the company, but one of the large shipping companies. The electrician husband would come to work and talk about how he had smacked her around and done all this. And Antoine met her one day and just thought, I'm going to save her. Wow. (laughs) I'm going to dash in and save her. And when she got divorced, he stepped in and said, hey, I'll take on you and your kids. And by the way, I got two of my own. So see how this works. And they were just the dream couple. You know, he wasn't really good at managing his money, but he was making great money because right. a guy, <laughs> you know, with a, with a couple of kids and alone. Yeah. And so she stepped in and said, Hey, you make the money. I will invest it. And she would buy land. She used to say that her father always told her, 
if you have any money at all, buy land because they're not made yeah. anymore. And that was one of the few things her father left her when he passed. He left her some land and she invested and grew timber on it and would sell the timber um, for pulp mills and things. And she just always bought land. And she ended up in the early 2000s, I think it was, she gave the city of Jacksonville an 800 acre island that she had purchased and she sold it to them at a super reduced price because she wanted that land preserved. And it's on the intercoastal waterway. It's called Betts Tiger Point Park. And she gives more than she takes, and she's the hardest working human being. She can outwork yeah. any man, any time. <laughs> still, still at 85 years old, 86 years old. She was born in 1933. She's still alive and still kicking, and she has not slowed down one bit. So she's still active and oh, yeah. doing stuff. Oh, God, yes. Last oh, wow. time I talked to her, she had another okay. invention. After Antoine passed away, she was single for several years, but she married a man that was also an engineer, a mechanical uh-huh. engineer, and they tinker he retired thinking he's going to rest and he's married to her so they're always creating something (laughs) so and here's something interesting when she was 15 she was picking tobacco because that's what they raised and she was sick of it she picked tobacco from the time she was a little kid and so she invented Uh at 15 years old a tobacco harvester and sold the patent on the harvesters 15 year old girl sitting down and going okay how do i mechanize this and she sold the patent for it at 15 years old. How did she figure out how to even patent something? I'm telling you, she's brilliant. The woman is brilliant. (laughs) And I have known some smart people in my life and it's not biased. She's just an incredibly smart human being. And I think she's smart in ways that some of us don't get. She's very spiritual. She she knows things. We had read an article which indicated near the end of the article, there was a whole section there about her being kind of clairvoyant or having these powers. Yeah. Is it significantly pronounced with her or absolutely. is it like a little thing that she... No. Oh, yeah. absolutely. She knows stuff she can't know. There was a time that she went on ship. She met it up in Norfolk, Virginia, and they had been having trouble with the ship. And she looked at this one engineer and she said, write this down. And she started listening off this number. And she said, this is what's wrong. This piece is what's wrong. Having heard nothing other than we're having trouble and they, the ship had had kind of to limp into the harbor. She said, this is what's wrong, this part. And they went and looked it up and they said, we just had this replaced. <laughs> so there was a part with this 20 digit number. And she said, you uh-huh. replaced it with a bad one. And they went and checked. And that was, now this is a massive ship. This is a cargo ship. And she's never. Yeah worked on a cargo ship. She just knows stuff. And she always has, and she doesn't brag about it, but she believes that when she hears that voice that says, hey, you need to do this, she does it. And she's always been right. And it's always guided her. And like I said, she's as honest as anybody you'll ever meet. And she's special in so many ways. Did she run for political office at some point or ever hold a political office? She did. She ran for the House of Representatives in 1974, I believe, right about the time Spaceball was going on. That's some good publicity. She did run for office and she almost won. She actually beat the incumbent in his own district, but Uh she came close to winning. And then she just decided, well, you know, maybe I don't go for office. Maybe I just do things behind the scenes. And she was always very politically involved, even up to, you know, meeting Ronald Reagan and Nancy Reagan, being involved with some of their campaign stuff in the 80s. And she still does. She's on a lot of different committees, committees that decide where tax money is going to go and what TIF districts are going to be in certain places. And she's still involved and people come to her for advice and she's still buying and selling real estate. I think she just bought another thousand acres somewhere in Florida recently just because it's a good investment. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, she's smart. She's very smart. It's so good to get all this background on her because it really frames the story overall, which before we go any further, I just want to thank you for agreeing to come on our show and talk about this. Sure. 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Julie from Whitehall, Pennsylvania. And when I'm not writing stories about ghosts, I'm listening to stories about ghosts here on Astonishing Legends. Now, let's get back to the show. So that paints a picture of Jerry, who was the matriarch of the family. She right. was the point person on this whole operation when this was happening. Yeah, very smart, capable, and uh, not crazy, not an irresponsible person prone to a hoax. That's right. another thing. It's like, oh, they were all hoaxing this thing for attention. It's like, no, no, they're just a regular they family. They don't need attention. No, no, she's a very smart, capable woman, very successful. One of those dream families you read about in the paper. And then you, sometimes you did read about her. There's a paper articles about just all of her endeavors well, and stuff. Well, she's still smart and capable, and this is what I love about our contact with this family. We've not even been allowed to directly communicate with her. Yeah, I wouldn't, but yeah, no. I, would, I wouldn't bother and I don't, her. Yeah. I don't need to do that. The feeling that we're getting from the other family members that we have been in touch with is like, this is a woman to be respected even now and uh, she's well into her 80s at this point yeah. and she's still not playing she's no, very <laughs> sharp and still a commanding presence i am sure and i just we just wouldn't want to bother her about this we're also compelled to tell this story the right way yeah because exactly. she's listening yeah. she is listening yeah, to this. yeah yeah there's a lot of people that have talked about this story on the internet and uh they probably talked about it in podcasts and they've talked about it in blog entries and you might not know if jerry betts is checking it out but we know for a fact she's already heard part one yeah. and she's going to be listening to this one so we got to be minding our p's and q's the reason though that we've been granted access in a way is to set these stories straight so as much as we can we'd like to do that so that from here on out anybody that accesses these facts can tell the real story because now you're hearing it from the source and as we said at the top of the show this is the best place to hear this because as i've gone through this i've started to doubt everyone else and their stories and motivations. I don't know who to trust, but I trust these folks. Well, they were the there. Yeah, they th were that's there. what I'm saying. And so, yeah, it's like you might think, I'd rather trust this authority or that one or the government. And then you start to wonder, it's like, yeah, but you know what? They've got something to hide. This family is, they've put it all out there and things went beyond their control. And 
I think they still want the answers, but it's almost like they certainly did not want the publicity that comes from this. And we've said this about other stories. Nothing ever great comes from saying, I found space goblins on our farm or this strange ball, or even that there's a big burnt ring. Although that family did win. Uh, the, they got $5,000. Uh, <laughs> yeah, from the yeah. National Enquirer. <laughs> but usually there's nothing great that comes from this. They were brave in coming forward. And again, that was not their initial choice, but they stuck by it and say, hey, here it is. We're not claiming it's anything. You tell us what it is. All right. So now we're going to go to our second segment of this interview where we're going to hear from our contact in the Betts family about exactly what happened when they found the sphere. And this is a firsthand account from somebody who was there when they came across it in the woods. Since we're talking about it now, can you talk a little bit about how it was first discovered? Okay. Early part of 74, we were having fires down in Florida and Jerry owned a lot of land that had timber on it. And there were pine trees that were grown specifically to be cut for pulpwood. Pine trees are extremely flammable. And when the fires raced across Florida, those pine forests go up like crazy. So she had had fire lines cut through, which is basically you go through with a bulldozer and bulldoze a bunch of stuff and get a break between the trees so that one tree can't fall over and set the rest of the woods on fire. So she'd had fire lines put in through there and we had more fires. What was starting these fires? Sometimes it was lightning. Sometimes it was people going out in these woods and setting fires. I mean, various things. And Florida just kind of has these times where fire startup, it gets dry. You've got, you know, it's like a tinderbox. We had recorded part one of this series already. It's not out yet as we're talking Mm -hmm. to you, but I was all pontificating about, well, Florida's damp. I can't figure out what would start a fire. (laughs) No. Yeah. This is the drier part of the marshy areas. (laughs) Yeah. I was making a fool of myself. So Florida is damp and where the island is now, Fort George, where the family lived, That is a very lush with the big old oak trees, and it's that typical kind of antebellum-type Florida that you see with the plantations. In fact, there's a plantation on the Uh island. But where the fire started, and I noticed this on some of the searches, you know, I told you after I talked to you, I Googled it, and it was like, what the heck? Some of the people were saying, we found the ball in Fort George. That's not true. The ball, it was probably 20 miles away as the crow flies, and it's further up toward Jacksonville on this property that she owned, and it was, I think, 80 acres of timberland. And so she went out to make sure that the fire trails had held and that the fire hadn't jumped because we knew that it was on some edges of the property, but we were hoping that it hadn't crossed and burned everything because that's a cash crop. So we went out there and there was one section that was really weird because it was like the trees were broken, almost like a microburst had gone through Uh where a storm will go through and it just kind of twists off the trees in a small area. It kind of looked like that. I've seen that in North Carolina. Yeah. Yeah. It's some freak anomaly. So we went out there. Um, Terry, her oldest son, was walking in one direction, just kind of looking and we can see pretty much, okay, it looks like everything's held, walked the fire trail on the way back in some of the woods there's something shiny and Terry walked over thinking it's trash or whatever. We're going to pick it up and take it with us. And he's like, what the heck is this thing? And it's a giant silver ball. And it's just laying in the middle of these woods right near where this kind of microbursty area looks, which led to speculation. Did something land? Did the ball come through? I don't know. It was just there. And so was the ball. So he picked it up and it was really heavy. And he thought, well, this is kind of cool. I'm take it home. We don't know what it is. So he took it home. 
it was 20 miles in which direction from Fort George? Oh gosh, I'm most okay. directionally impaired. It's okay. heading toward Jacksonville, which I think would be south. Yes, yeah, so yeah, south. So south towards Jacksonville. Closer to the town then, closer to the city. Closer to the city, but still, it was a long way away. I mean, you're still a long way from the city. Okay. Long, many, many, many miles. Okay, gotcha. So it's out in the middle of nowhere because there are stretches between Fort George and Jacksonville. You'll have stretches of highway that just go where it's marsh on both sides for as far as you can see. And there's nothing, I mean, nothing for the long, long stretches. So you have a lot of that. It's this barrier area. But in that area, you also have big areas of pulp forest, which is they don't have oak trees and things like that. It's just mostly pine. And that leads me to, there was another comment that I saw online where some guy said he had had the ball on the top of his Volkswagen or something mm-hmm. like that, was driving cross country. It was an art the thing. The sculptor. Yeah, yes. it fell off and rolled. We're talking a mile into the woods. Okay. This is not, it's not near a road. We're driving the old Fleetwood station wagon down a logging trail and then going, walking through the woods. There's nothing there. There was no way he could have been back there. Right. You know, he could, I don't think he could have gotten back there in a vehicle. We had to walk. So that thing, I looked up and thought, I'd never heard that before, but I thought that was kind of funny. Yeah, that's all over the internet about him. We tried to find him. We couldn't find him anywhere. And I, in fact, contacted a sculptor. His name was James Derling Jones. I contacted a sculptor named James Jones, who was in England, who does works with steel. And, and, uh, and steel balls. Yeah, and <laughs> balls. And also, he, all, he has all these sculptures that are like made of ones and zeros, because that's his thing. And I emailed oh, him, wow. I sent this long email and it's like the bed's fear and da 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 da. And he wrote back and he's like, it's not me, mate. You know, <laughs> like, that was it. <laughs> so. I'm impressed. You guys really do do your research. And that's why I decided, I know that we've had people that want to do movies about it. I mean, seriously, oh, yeah, I, sure. we got a, a script about all this and we just wanted it to kind of go away. But the fact that you guys research things so well, and I know you're not coming at it with an agenda you want to know. Yeah. So I want to tell you everything that we know on our side and then let the chips fall where they may because we don't have a preconceived idea of what it is we still don't know. Okay. (laughs) No idea. Thank you very much for the compliment. We really appreciate it. We are so excited to be able to talk to you. I can't tell you how thrilled I am. (laughs) I actually, I might be a fan. I hooked you guys up on my Stitcher. Okay. (laughs) We have a lot of other topics that I think might be up your alley based on some of the stuff you said off the record, actually. So I think- Yeah, uh, in both the realms of supernatural stuff, paranormal, stuff, historical, but there's a meeting point where this fear, like it might be at the intersection of different types of phenomena. Yeah, maybe. Were you there when it was discovered? Yes. You were out there. So I know how far it was out in the woods. Okay. Like I said, it's not near a road. And and what we did was the property now, it's just, it's nothing but trees. Yeah. And the only pathway through there is, like I said, this trail that they've cut. Well, it's got giant stumps and stuff. It's not like a trail you can drive down. So that made us realize for somebody to have gotten it out here, who's going to carry a 20 pound metal steel ball up to the edge of some woods and walk a mile out into these woods, maybe a little farther and leave it? That made no sense. How far was it from the area that you described as looking like it had been hit by a microburst? I think probably 20 yards. Okay. Interesting. When I think about that, I've been down at the coast of North Carolina after some particularly severe hurricanes whose names I forget because there's been so many of them. But there was there was one (laughs) It was my friends and my grandparents, their front yard had a lot of pine trees. They surmised that maybe a tornado had passed through but hadn't touched down like it was off the ground. So all the trees in their front yard, the top halves of them were missing. But the trunks were still... They're just twisted off. Yeah. So is that the kind of thing that you're describing seeing? Yeah. Okay. That's exactly it. Okay. And you see those in some places like where a weird gust of wind will hit, you know, maybe the wind is swirling in it. And it is kind of like a little tornado. So it looked like that, which 
we made note of because it just looked odd and it didn't make any sense because it wasn't part of what we cleared. It was just this broken out place. Right. But we never linked the two. Other people did later on, but when you look at it in retrospect, maybe there is a connection, right. however it got there. Maybe a helicopter. Who knows? I don't know. Okay. I'm just speculating. Right, sure, sure. It wouldn't have been. All right, before we get to the next section of the interview here, I just want to say one thing. I want to restate this. Are you going to spoil one of our uh, final conclusionary? Well, no, 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 I'm not. I'm, okay. not. I'm just going to okay. say it's so great to talk to somebody from the family who was there for this. Yeah. It's so amazing to hear about where it actually was. And we have those coordinates. We can tell you exactly where it was. It wasn't on the island. It wasn't on Fort George Island, which a lot of people think it was, even mm-hmm. though there's other blog entries that indicate that, no, it wasn't there. It was on a piece of land, but they don't really say where it was. We found out more or less where it was found, which was 20 miles away. Right. The next thing is, it was on a fire road. They were examining the fire. They're off in the woods. They're far away. There's logs down or whatever. This is a mile What are the odds, yeah, yeah, that the sculptor is out there in a (laughs) microbus with a bunch of steel balls rolling around on the roof that are falling off into the woods? Now, I get it, sure. People are probably going, oh, yeah, he's a sculptor. He went out there. To uh, meditate. Yeah, to meditate, Doing so yoga to speak. Do with some a yoga. With a 21-pound ball. Right, and he lost his balls. They fell right. off the top of the microbus. By the way, have you ever been off-roading in a Volkswagen microbus <laughs> well, in 1974? Yeah. If yeah. it was brand new at the time, probably was a 68. Oh. Let's say, do you know what the ground clearance on that thing is? It's yeah. like three inches. Yeah. Someone's going to email me about that. But seriously, <laughs> well, no, it just dude. doesn't make sense. And there's no shortage of the skeptical side of this argument. They're saying that the Volkswagen microbus with the sculptor who, by the way, lived in Taos, New Mexico. Yeah. Driving and then it was through. like, oh, I was in Jacksonville in 1974. Right. Great. You were? <laughs> All right. Because this is 20 miles from Jacksonville. Oh, were yeah. you there too? Oh, okay. It's not just 20 miles from Jacksonville. It's in the woods on a fire road. Were you there too? Oh, in your microbus, off-roading, and the balls fell off? No. The answer is no. That's not what it is. This is a case of the skeptical side of people looking at the Beth Sphere story, jumping to conclusions. <laughs> Office space <laughs> reference. Jumping yeah. to conclusions. Of, oh, that's what it is. That's the Occam's razor of this story. It's a sculptor's ball that fell off the roof of van. With... That explanation, it's likely, sure, but here are the problems with it that people tend to ignore. As people accuse those who believe stuff, like cattle mutilations and everything, like, oh, well, you're jumping to conclusions, I want to hear hard facts and science. As both sides do, they're both guilty of this, and I'm saying debunkers, not skeptical people, because we should all be a little skeptical, a little bit, and to fit your tastes, and those who believe everything, well, first of all, I've never met anyone who just outright believes everything that they hear. They're probably an idiot Yeah, (laughs) in the the true definition. Or there's something wrong with you if you just believe everything. So we all have a little skepticism in us, but we all have different lines. We have a moving line of where you jump off and here it's a ball. So my point is that what the debunking side, the extreme part of skepticism and cynicism, what they're often guilty of, I see, is that they'll find somebody who says, I did that, that was a hoax, that was me, or... That was my fault. I lit those Chinese lanterns and that's what you saw. It's like, oh, there you go. See, that explains it. This guy did it. Well, why are you believing him just because he or she said that or claiming it's a hoax? Why are they any more trustworthy than the person who said they did see something and it was not a Chinese lantern? Because in that case, that's the easiest thing and the most comfortable thing to believe. People love the Occam's razor. It's not always the simplest thing. 
Sometimes there's three or four simple things happening at once to create a bigger story, and that's more convoluted. But each one of those components to a story is simple. They're happening at once. It may have happened with this story. But what we see here is just somebody saying, yeah, I was around at that time. Well, as we just heard, there's only one main road in and out of there. And you'd have to be on that if you were not living in the place or inspecting your 88-acre tract of land. As they were doing, clearly, once again, they were on a fire road. They hiked in a mile from that road, and that's about where the sphere was found. Without any indentation, without any uh, signs of that rolling in by itself, because if you believe that, like, well, maybe it rolled off the road and it just rolled in a mile, you know, a long, steep incline. Now we're back to the sphere being crazy magical. You know what I'm well, saying? and like, here, I want to tell people exactly where this is for anybody that's familiar with Fort George Island, because we have heard this directly from the family and from a family member who was present when they found the ball out in the woods. This is not too far from the intersection of Fay Road and Alta Drive. Fay Road and Alta Drive. And if you look now at this land, and no, I have not been to Jacksonville, but I can say that this particular piece of land still appears to be, according to Google Maps, which isn't always current, there may be a Walmart there now, but right now it looks undeveloped. But it's very close to developed land everywhere. There's a restaurant right across the street, the Viva Mexican Restaurant, mm. which I got to admit sounds delicious. Oh, right and, about now, yes. Yeah, and mm -hmm. then uh, because it's 1.53 in the morning. <laughs> and then there's Atlantic Self Storage and some other looks like a trucking or shipping facility. And this is just north of 295, which it's been made clear to us by the Beth's family that that was not there at the time. This was all wooded yeah, area. Right, and this was a good 20 minute drive, at least maybe 30 from their house at Mount Cornelia and also still 20 minutes away from Jacksonville proper. Right. So this is the middle of nowhere. And this was land that Jerry Betts had trees on for pulp, for paper. That yeah, she exactly. Was, cash crop. Yeah, it's cash crop. Here's the other thing that's uh, problematic with that is that, so you're out in the middle of nowhere. You know, you just have a guy saying, well, that was probably me. I was making steel balls. Okay. So then if you're the rational type, like, let's see one. Well, show us some proof. It's like, well, I, I don't have them. I can't show you one because my friend kind of stole them from an industrial yeah, it was supply a, company. A secret Balls where he are was, us. Yeah. The ball factory, the ball emporium, wherever he snagged them from illegally. Well, I can't show you because, well, I don't want to get him in trouble and all that. Okay. Well, you don't have any proof then. And it's like with the paper manufacturing, St. Regis. Yes. I believe the president of the company at some point said, well, you know, we use those in manufacturing a lot. That sounds a lot similar to what we do, the size of that ball. It's like, oh, well, do you have one? Can you show us one? Like, well, I, I can't really. So nobody's come up with a suitable example of a ball valve, a sculpture ball, something that they stole, something that they use in their industry that's similar. So as we'll hear, we'll hear from the people that actually work with things like this. And what is their reaction? Not somebody who just says, well, that could have been this. That's fine. Like I said, that's suitable. Then show it to me. Let's see the proof. Like, well, nobody has that. Well, I can't show that to you. So that's just good as, well, I saw this thing and it was crazy. Well, let's see this or that. Well, I can't show that to you, so I have no proof. Like, well, then, all right, we're back to square one. People are just ready to jump to that because it's some kind of razor, it's some kind of easy solution, but it's just somebody claiming something with no proof to back it up. So how is that any better than any of these other explanations where we do have this ball and it does weird things, you can come look at it. 
You can come record it. You can come test it and see for yourself. And that's what people did. This brings us to the next segment of our interview with our guest from the Betts family, where we're going to hear about what happens after Terry Betts decides that he needs to take this thing home. So we take it home and Terry takes it up to his room. Now, the house, the Betts family house was an old mansion that was built by the Neff family. Francine Neff was the treasurer of the United States for a while, and it was her family. They built it. No one ever lived in the house. It was kind of a vacation home. And there were several of those very exclusive vacation homes that wealthy families had on the island. And they would just come maybe spend a few weeks in the summer or once in a while in the winter. Otherwise, they were just boarded up and stayed. The Betts house was one of those houses. And it was just this huge castle type structure that was beautiful and had all these different rooms and little hideaway places. Terry's room was up in an attic area, up in the very top part of the house, this crow's nest area. So he was up by himself took the ball up there and he had a window seat. He set the ball in the window seat and Terry was musical. He was playing guitar one night and he hit a chord that the ball made a, like a buzzing, almost like it was trying to play the chord back sound. It was very close to the chord and Terry tried to get it to do it again and it wouldn't. And then later on when he was playing and he played something, it did it again. We don't think the same chord he couldn't remember, but it did it again he ends up bringing it downstairs. How long after it had come home was this? Because there's some of the stories say that this was a week or two. He had kind of forgotten about it and it was several days later or something. It was a couple of days later. It was within the week of finding okay, it. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, and it wasn't like you forgot about it because it was this weird right, thing, right. you know, this ball. So he ends up bringing it downstairs. Well, this is when it starts getting weird. There was a library in the house that had these really unusual tile floors that were squares and rectangles of this Italian tile with grout, like a half inch grout line in between. Okay. And there was a, a table in that library that had a glass top on it, a wooden table. And Terry set the ball on the table and it's just sitting there not doing anything. And he walks away and it starts rolling. So he comes back over thinking it's going to fall. Well, it doesn't. It goes to the edge of the table and it stops. And then it rolls back the other way and it stops, and then it just sits there, and he kind of thought, well, the floor's uneven, but that still doesn't make any sense. If it's uneven, it's going to roll off, but it didn't do that. Well, then over the next couple of days, we start noticing that it will just be sitting there, and then it'll start to roll and roll around. It would never fall off the table. It would roll to the edges. It would come back. Sometimes it would roll for five minutes. Sometimes it would just roll a little ways and stop. You could set it on the floor, and it would start to roll, and it would follow the grout lines of the Uh floor. What was really weird about it is if you were the one that rolled it, it would come back to you. And if you moved, it would still come back to you. And we replicated that over and over again. And we kind of joked about it at first. And then we realized, well, it's not a joke. I mean, it is coming back to the same person every time. And the news channel came out, one of the news channels, somebody said, hey, you guys need to go check this thing out. They came out and their newscaster stood there and rolled it. And it came back to him. He rolled it again and he moved and it came back to him. And as he moved, I mean, it was like following him around. It was very bizarre. Did you personally witness everything you're describing? Yes, absolutely. Yes. I want to make sure our listeners know that. So. Yes. Another thing we noticed was at one point when it was on the table, after it had started to roll, there was something on the table. And I can't remember now if it was a paper clip or what it was, but it was something metal. And it popped up and it stuck to the ball like it was a magnet. And it was really weird. And we pulled it off and set it down close to the ball again. And it pulled it right back up onto the ball. So then we got to where we had several kids in the house. And of course, we're playing with it because we don't think it's anything bad at this point. We don't know anything about it. We would roll it around the floor and spin it and roll it back and forth each other. Well, after it would move, the longer that it moved, the more magnetic it became. 
and it would pick stuff up. And we got the lid to a mayonnaise jar, the metal lid, and we would put it on the side of the ball before we started playing with it. And it would just slide right off and fall off the ball. After you rolled it around for a little while, it would stick a little harder. After you rolled it for 10, 15 minutes, you couldn't pull it off. Really? I mean, it was so hard on there. It increased the magnetism of it. And we saw this over and over again without fail. Jerry's got the mechanical mind here. Plus, Antoine is an engineer. Are there any theories starting to develop here in the house? Antoine said in industrial applications, you basically have a ball that can roll down a pipe and clog the pipe and it'll stop it off. It's you know like an emergency stop type thing. He said, maybe it's a ball valve. Well, he started doing his research on that as much as you could because you didn't have internet. And he knew what he was talking about. And he had gone down to the shipyard and talked to some people. And they said, first of all, a ball valve that big, we don't know what it would be used for. Secondly, you know, maybe it could have been used in the paper mills, but you're not going to have one that weighs that much. And they were able to show him a ball valve. Well, it weighed about five to seven pounds and it had a seam. I mean, it was obviously not what we had. It wasn't even close. So that kind of threw that out. And other people came to us later and said, have you thought about a ball valve? Yeah, we did. And we looked, we contacted, there was a um, paper mill nearby that was called St. Regis Paper Mill and talked to some of the guys that were there and said, have you guys ever seen anything like that? And they said, no, we don't use anything like that here. And that was the only thing that we could think of. You know, and there was really no other industry around. I mean, even that was a long way away from where we found it. So there was speculation as to what it could be. And we thought, well, we're over here near an Air Force base. It was a Mayport Naval Air Station. Maybe it's something to do with them. Well, once it got on the news and they did a story about it, all of a sudden, everything went crazy. We had people showing up at our house at all hours. We lived on the island. Fort George Island is probably 50,000 acres of just woods and marsh. There's not really much out there. People would just come camp in the woods. And you'd look outside and there'd be a tent in your yard and it'd be some crazy person or they'd be trying to get in the house. And we didn't have any security, really. It was just our home. There was a son-in-law of the family who was a police officer. And he, on his time off, was kind of our one-man security team trying to keep us safe. The kids had to be picked up from school instead of riding the bus because there were people trying to stop the bus. It was just insane. These people and phone calls constantly. This is back before call waiting and answering machines and that sort of thing. So if you're on the phone, your phone is busy for everybody else that calls in. If you put the phone down, literally, as soon as you set it down from one phone call, it rang again. And it, that was 24 hours a day. So sometimes they would have to take the phone off the hook just to be able to breathe. But if there was an emergency or anything, you couldn't get through because the phone was always, always busy. Well, it gets out. I'm not sure what their rank was, but some gentlemen from Mayport Naval Air Station showed up and asked if they could see the ball. Jerry showed him the ball. They left. They contacted her that afternoon and said that they would like to come by and pick it up and possibly do some studies on it. And she said, well, let me think about that a little bit and I'll get back to you because I don't know how I feel about that quite yet. So with the phones not being usable, she took some time before she contacted them again. And she said, I'm going to kind of wait right now until I fully understand what's going on here before I turn it over to anyone. And then they got a little more, I don't know if aggressive is a good word, but they were a little more tenacious about staying in contact with us and wanting to see it. They were very clear about that. At one point, she finally gave in. She let them take it. They took it to supposedly Mayport is what they told us. Mayport? They contacted her later and said, Mayport okay. Naval Air Station. And that is the closest thing to Fort George Island. There's a ferry that goes between Fort George and Mayport. So this is... You know, it's a mile across the river. Is that different from Jacksonville Naval Air 
Yes. Okay. Yes. NAS Jacks, that's up in far south of us. Okay. Mayport is right where you're getting toward Fort George Island, Amelia Island, Fernandina, all this, these barrier islands. And it's right on the edge of the intercoastal waterway and the ocean. Okay. It's right there. Okay. So they were going to take it there. They contacted her and said, hey, we realize that our x-ray equipment is not strong enough to penetrate and we want to do x-rays. So we're going to have to take it somewhere else, probably Cape Canaveral. So she said, well, I don't feel so good about that, actually. So I would like for you to bring it back. Strangely enough, they brought it back, (laughs) which when does that ever happen? Yeah, that's the big question. Well, here's the strange thing. When they brought it back, something was going on. And I don't know if it was a holiday or what was going on, but apparently there weren't a lot of high ranking people that were there that were calling the shots. So the ball gets delivered back to her with a folder that's like a big manila folder. Well, she takes it. It was a young guy that brought it back in. She said she didn't think he was an officer, but he is a naval person. Brings it back, gives it back to her. Everything looks fine. She opens the folder and it's x-rays. And they are x-rays that show the inside of the ball for the first time we see what we're looking at. Uh No seam, no fill point. It's hollow. And the hollow on the inside, if you were to take your hands and put them together, like forming a circle between your thumb and your finger, it's about that size, like the size of an orange, the hollow part on the inside. Then there are these balls on the inside with little wires sticking out. Wait, 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 wait. There's a question. It was our understanding the dimensions are just under eight inches across. Is it bigger than that or? Like I said, I'm spatially challenged when it comes to things like that. It's about the size of a bowling ball, a little bit bigger than a bowling ball. People have described the shell as being a half inch thick. Are you saying that it was thicker than that on the inside? Well, no, because you could see grades in the shell. So I think that there was a probably a coating on the outside and then another and then the hollowness on the inside. They were different colors, different shades of gray. So I don't know if that means it's different metal or different density or what. So the inside is hollow and it's not like a giant hollow opening. It's about the size of an orange on the inside from what we're seeing on the x-rays. And when you would roll it, you didn't hear the balls like rolling. Like if you put marbles in the dish, they all gather at the bottom of the dish. You know what I'm saying? These were like hanging around, like floating in there. And I don't know if there was something inside a gas or I don't think there was a liquid because you didn't hear sloshing, but it was like they floated around and you'd hear them ping the sides once in a while. Like they just almost a the sonar ping kind of sound uh, oh. like that. Yeah. And when you roll it, you wouldn't hear them like rolling in the bottom, but you'd hear them once in a while like hit the sides as you rolled it around. I wonder if it had a liquid in it with absolutely no oxygen, if maybe you wouldn't hear sloshing because there's it, it's right. completely filled so. with liquid. I understand what yeah. you're saying. Possibly. Yeah. Huh. Okay. So we never found out that either. But we did start doing our own little experiments because then we thought, okay, the Navy's interested. They're acting really weird. They told us they didn't have the x-ray equipment. Obviously, they did because we got these x-rays that we probably were not supposed to have ever gotten. And you think that was a mistake? I absolutely think that was a mistake. I do. The high-ranking officers were away and they were like, oh, we better take this back. You know, I don't know. All I know is that the person that brought it back didn't seem like super official. Uh It was just odd. It was kind of like they gave it to a delivery guy from the Navy to bring it back. It was just, it was different than what you would have expected. They weren't the guys that came and got it. Yeah. Let's put it that way. It was someone that came back. So I think what she got she wasn't supposed to get because there was no note. There was, it wasn't drama. Like it said, classified on her right. thing, but she got x-rays when they had told her we don't have the equipment here. So she gets the ball back. They ramped it up. All of a sudden, Dr. Heineck contacts the family and he wants to come and visit and talk to the family about it. So that's when he got into the picture, he comes along and this is probably a couple months into it, maybe, okay. maybe three months. Okay. At this time, we're on the front of national Enquirer, every magazine, 
We're on every tabloid show that there is. Um, Antoine is not home at this point. He's back out at sea. He's had to go and he's on his way to Japan. And his first mate comes in and says, chief, you need to come into the radio room and hear this. He goes in and it's an interview with his wife and some interviewer and they're picking it up on their radio. And he's halfway across the world. That's how crazy it was. We were getting bags of mail. I mean, literally bags, like the Santa Claus bags of mail that you see. Yeah, Miracle on 34th Street. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, we were getting those. And what was so weird, it brings out the weirdest of the weird. Because anytime you have something that is unusual like this, you're going to have your people who are legit. And then you're going to have your freaks of nature who have just been waiting to spread their wings (laughs) and fly into your life. (laughs) And at one point, Carrie who's the one that found it goes to the post office to get the mail and there's an envelope waiting that has postage due on it. So he has to pay the postage for just, you know, a couple <laughs> bucks or whatever it was. He gets out of the car, he opens it up and it says, you long haired freak, cut your hair and get a job. <laughs> <laughs> the label on the front was Betts Ball United States. That's <laughs> all. And we, would, we would get mail. Wow. Right. So, and literally, we would get mail, I mean, from all over the world that would just be addressed to the family with the ball, United States, and it would get to us. And Jerry actually kept a lot of letters. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, y'all. This is James from Texas. And when I'm not using Morse code to communicate with the Marfa lights, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. Let me ask you a question as yeah. we come out of this last segment of the interview. Do you think people can just write Astonishing Legends on the envelope and we would get it? <laughs> That's a good test. <laughs> I'm not asking anybody should do that, but if with the proper postage, it's not you're making happen. somebody work. I was always fascinated by this. Actually, it's an REM album, I think, Dead Letter Office. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah That's sure. like they can't forward it here. Right. What it shows you is that somebody is actually thinking about this and caring like, oh, yeah, yeah, um, that's that family in Florida. Yeah, I think I can get it there. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and, and so, uh, you know, somebody's making an extra effort, plus uh, just to deliver a jerky message with postage due. Well, to do listen that. to this. According to Wikipedia, at a DLO or dead letter office, mail is usually open to try to find an address to forward to. If an address ah. is found, the envelope is usually sealed using tape or postal seals or enclosed in plastic bags and delivered. If the letter or parcel is still undeliverable, valuable items are then auctioned off while the correspondence is usually destroyed. Despite this practice, in the past, some undeliverable envelopes were acquired by philatelists. Oh, stamp collectors. Yes. Yes, that's what it is. All right, let's move on. So here's the thing that we talk about in the last segment here. 
with our wonderful guest from the Betts family. It's just been so much fun talking to her, although we've said it in person a lot. I just want to say thank you again for coming on the show. Absolutely. You really took this episode to the next level. But um, going back to when Terry took it up to his room, and it was sitting up there for a few days, and then he starts playing the guitar, and it starts resonating that's a really fascinating moment. It's interesting because it seems to be a specific chord or notes. Yeah. Or but even notes. though he's trying the notes again, it's not coming well, back. Well, it's not exact. Yeah. yeah. So there's some response to harmonic vibration or some kind of you know musical notes of something. So this thing seems to be acting as some kind of transceiver of sorts of frequencies. Yes. It's all about frequency. And if you get way out there and woo-woo, a lot of people will say that vibration and harmony and frequency runs the universe. That's the currency of the universe. Energy, frequency, vibration, the basis of all matter. Somehow this thing seems to be responding to it, but we don't know how. It's just that it's a tune, let's say. The neighbors are saying, this is some kind of alien bugging device, you know? Yeah. And, and Jerry's like, well, I don't know, maybe. You know, <laughs> who, who can say? You know, we don't, we don't know. I mean, probably don't think so, but... Also, I'm looking back to this moment in the 70s when Terry, who's a pretty cool dude, he's up, he's got his guitar, his girlfriend at the time is over, he's playing. It's like, not only is he playing the guitar, but like, he's got this cool thing they found in the woods. It's like resonating with, it's like, <laughs> yeah. this is the grooviest situation of all time. It right was, uh, well, that was the age of it. I don't... <laughs> Remember that the neighbor kids had uh, the color organ from Radio Shack. Right, right. Like, you'd play the music and it would would respond. That and strobe lights were big. This is the time of, like, groovy, yeah, kind of funky instruments. But this is unlike anything else. I mean, that's what's interesting is that immediately Terry noticed. You know, Jerry's point was that we're just trying to find out what it is. We don't know. Everybody goes to, you know, that phrase, little green men. That's the joke that people jump to. Nowadays, they play the X-Files theme. Yeah. If it's any news kind of story. And that's the funny ongoing joke. But here's obviously something that, I'll put it this way. The people that make fun of it have not been near it. This is something you've said before, and I want to go back to it. You know, you just kind of sloughed over it, your very own point. But it's a really significant point. And it's something that I talked to our contact about with the Betts family. Yeah. What you just said, you know, it's they put this thing on and they play the X-Files theme. And probably before that, it was just a theremin or whatever. <laughs> this is the theremin. And so yeah, music. It, yeah. you're making a, a very salient point that people might be glossing over. But, and I'm not disparaging local news organizations, but they yeah. happen to be the ones disseminating the information. They're the ones that are charged with it. And so right. UFO X is seen here or whatever is seen here. And then they want to run it on the news because it's interesting, it's different, and it gets people intrigued. But they don't want anyone to take it seriously. I so they not, play that. I am not getting political here. No. But that is bias. You know what yeah. I'm saying? It's like, well, we don't believe in this. this no, is this is, we're going to make it campy. Well, this is the thing. I don't think they necessarily don't believe in it. I think they're afraid to commit to believing in it. Whether they well, do nobody or not. Can't. Well, nobody can because, again, nobody's taken seriously if you do because it's that collective thing of like, well, we're all going to agree, right? If you do say you're serious about this, you got to be on the other side of the nutcase line. You know so what I... <laughs> the, the, the velvet nutcase rope, like, you're over there now, okay? Because you, you said you might entertain that fact. It's the same thing with, is it Five Symington? Yeah. In Arizona, the yeah. governor at the time. Oh, yeah. He did the press conference after the Phoenix Lights, and it's like, you know, he comes out in an alien suit, and it's like... Uh, yeah, made uh, fun make, of you're it. You made fun of it. And then, of course, after he's out of office years later, he's like, I actually believe in that. Right. I don't know. I can't remember that... if he saw them, but he came out and said, no, I, I think that is something that's kind of well, It's real. like the press conference in Close Encounters. Yeah. I'll just remind everyone that with regard to the Phoenix Lights, the first person who saw the Phoenix Lights or reported them from the sky... Yes, the first civilian pilot. pilot. Yeah. 
Kurt Russell. Yeah, <laughs> he was flying so in. So if the Phoenix yeah. Lights are crazy, then Kurt Russell is crazy. <laughs> and I know that Kurt Russell is a hero. He's well, an American hero. That's true. An amazing, I mean, it's Snake Plissken. Snake is not going to lie about no. that. The other thing is, I think he was talking about his son, Oliver. Yeah. You know, when you're a pilot and you start, you love to fly, it's like any excuse. So I think one of the kids was like, hey, can we go to Phoenix? Like, yeah, yeah, I'll fly you there right now. So yes. he, he gets in there, but yeah, he was the first one to log the report that something weird was up there, which is, that's what, that's very interesting. Kurt, if you're out there, yeah. uh, really, 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 really want to interview you about being snake puss, about the <laughs> Phoenix <laughs> the, the, lights. Yeah, just what um, you saw. But you're right. That is the attitude. Look, we're not going that far here with this device because no one yet is going there because again, it's not overtly... I guess there's levels of strange. If this thing were levitating and floating and turning different colored lights, that's a different story. Right now, it's doing things that are, I guess, stage one strange. Yes. It shouldn't be doing these things. It's very weird, but it's not so outrageous that people are running from it and lighting torches and throwing pitchforks. Yes. So far, it's... Pretty harmless. The Navy is determined it's not explosive. It's happy fun ball. It's not, well, that was dangerous. Remember, like, remember the, the <laughs> yes, warning, yes. don't taunt happy fun ball. It will get mad. Here's, the Navy has come back as, well, it's not radioactive. Yeah. It's not explosive. You know, there's chemicals coming off that. And the Marines. It is the, magnetic, the, though. I'll tell you what. If yeah. you had an iPad or an iPhone or a computer, it's going to mess it up. Yeah, that was, uh, <laughs> that is one weird thing about it. But the officers in charge of ordinance, I think, for the Marine base came out and said, like, no, you're fine. I mean, that's, that's part of our charge. We have to go check to make sure it's not unexploded uh, ordinance here, but I think you're fine. So it's doing strange things. And yeah, people would say, well, if it's vibrating, I wouldn't get close to it. But so far, it's just an interesting ball. Now, going in that vein to continue here, that is one thing that was cleared up is that the table that they were rolling it on was round. Right? Yeah, that's another correction we need to make. We talked about how the table was rectangular, but in fact, it was round. It's a wooden table. Not only that, it's a very, yeah, I can tell you all about this table, courtesy of the Betts family and the information we've been getting from them. We talked about Antoine, and he worked on the cargo ships mm -hmm. that a lot of times were going to Japan. Yeah. And so when he was going to Japan, he would go over there and bring stuff back like mm -hmm. anybody would who was in that field. And he bought the table overseas. So he brought this beautiful hand-carved wooden table. And it's one of those tables where, first of all, and I should get to the correction, mm -hmm. it's not a rectangle, it's a circle. Yeah, It's a circular table, but it's one of those tables, and everyone's going to know this when I start talking about it, because everyone's family at some point had one of these, where mm -hmm. it's got the stools underneath it. When you push them in, oh, yeah, they're yes, part right. of the circle. Yeah, that's you can right. pull them out, right. and then everyone can, or small people can sit around them. Yeah, and I yeah, say yeah. small people because the Betts family is using this table for the kids at Thanksgiving yeah. to this day. Oh, that's cool. And we that's have a picture cute. of it. Oh. And what I want to say is they, they still have the table. They still have the wooden table. We have some close-up pictures of it. It is gorgeous. But you know what's on top of it? Hmm. A nice big piece of thick circular glass. So Coming back yeah. to the story right. about the sphere rolling around on it and uneven surface or whatever, it was glass. Yeah. And the other thing that was pointed out to us by our contact in the Betts family, who we've been interviewing tonight, is when we said that Antoine would put the level on the table, he did do that. Mm -hmm. She said not only did he do that, he was putting the level on the floor. Everywhere it went, He was he's an engineer. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was like, what is happening? How, yeah, yeah. how is this ball doing this? Yeah. So they know that the table was level and that it was glass and that it was going around the table and it was spiraling inward like we described so, with the so, rectangular yeah, to table. Be, to be clear, it did go to the edges. Yes, and, and stopped. And checked the edges, stopped. And like it was, again, a self-preservation thing where it knew like, well, I don't know how far down this is. I'm just going like, to roll off the table. Right, and that's an it important factor that it's going to come back in my conclusions in okay. the last part of this series. But yeah, so that's the story with the table. Here's the other thing. We got pictures of it and you can see pictures of that table on our website oh, with cool. this episode. All right. So the next thing we want to talk about is the paper mill, right? Yes. Just to reiterate, as I said before the segment, I believe, if I remember correctly, that part of the reason that people will believe that explanation, and again, that's pretty likely. You have a president of a company saying like, oh yeah, that's very similar to what we use in the paper mill business. Moving uh, chemicals from one tank to another in the pulping process where you're turning wood into pulp to make paper or whatever you're doing. Shifting chemicals between large tanks, we use these balls as stoppers. Oh, can you point us to one? Like, no, I can't. But, uh, you know, it's a similar. It's similar. It's like, well, Antoine went to the guys that actually work there and said, like, what I'm describing, is this anything like you guys would use? And they're like, no, not really. I mean, yeah, there's ball stoppers. We certainly heard of that. You probably have too. This is not like anything that we have used. So instead of the president of the company just making a random statement where he could not back that up with any kind of proof or even said like, yeah, look in the uh, St. Regis catalog, page 432, and that column there, you'll see the same ball, the same dimensions. He's just making an offhand comment and people, well, there you go. It's explained. Yeah. Antoine, again, it's like people say, well, that's a pretty simple thing. Why didn't he go ask those people? Well, he did. It is like people asking us, why didn't you go check to make sure that those weren't radio frequencies? Well, we did. Yeah. So oh my God. There you go. obviously it wasn't a simple thing and uh, we're not embarrassed by not checking certain things. That is obvious. And that's what we did. And that's what Antoine did. He went and checked. It's like, that's a local industry. And, and again, their thoughts are not immediately that it's a space ball dropped by aliens. It's like, there's a few industries around here, not many, as she said, but there is one close by. Let's go check it out. Antoine, by the way, really amazing looking dude. The family shared a picture with us that we're also posting with this episode. Yeah. And apparently they referred to him as Antoine the Magnificent. Oh, yeah. And when you <laughs> see, you can see it when you look at him. He looks amazing and yeah. he's got a silent film mustache. Yeah, he looks like, like, he looks nice. like an actor of yeah, the, yeah. Of, uh, it's very the, dashing. In the, in the day, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Talking about uh, military men, because he uh, or men in uniform, the screw-up, the x-rays that come back, it seems accidentally with the first return of the ball to the family. Yeah, some young guys bringing them back, well, and they're know, like, there seemed to be an implication that probably, all the officers were on vacation. Hey, the ball's probably sitting on the envelope. <laughs> it's like, I guess that goes back to, I don't know, somebody yeah. said, just, I take it back to the family, here's the But address. also, I would not underestimate Jerry Betts calling the base and being like, you better bring it back. Bring back <laughs> everything you have. Yeah. Bring it back now. And they're like, okay. You know, so they bring it back, and they brought the x-rays, and it's like, oh, wow, the x-rays. That happens all the time, but it's very telling because this is their first glimpse inside this is a very significant event because they were privy to two sets of x-rays and the first set and the second set were not the same. Yeah. They demonstrated that there had been a change in the structure yeah. of the sphere. Well, the second set, Jerry paid for herself yes. or the family did by an independent company. And yeah, it, things have been changed. Yeah. But before we get into that, this one showed though that the inside, yes, it was hollow, but there are layers. This is what I'm gathering from her description. There are gradations of, yes. of course, it's gray, it's black and white, it's, a, it's an x-ray, but it looks like there are levels to the inside of this. So imagine the size comparisons, an orange inside 
a bowling, a bowling ball. ball. Yeah, that's interesting to me because everything that we've heard is like, okay, well, it's just under eight inches in diameter. A half then inch it has a half shell. inch thick shell. Yeah. So you're looking at a seven and a half inch diameter on the inner shell. An orange is much smaller than that. So I'm oh, very sure. curious about the discrepancy. Well, I don't, this is the weird thing is that, and of course they don't know because you're not actually looking at the inside. Something is blocking that in variations. Yeah. That is not the same thickness or composition as the very outside of the shell, which is also in question. So as you're looking into it, like what's inside? The other thing that's telling is the description of the at least three small balls inside the larger ball and that if they were just by gravity, if you're rolling around and that's all solid, you would hear them rolling, like rattling inside every yeah. time you rolled it, but they didn't. Yeah. It was sometimes quiet. Sometimes the ball would just be sitting there and you'd hear one ping against the side. Yeah. Or ping against something. The balls emitted a halo of yes. energy. That's also very fascinating. Yeah. And as she said in her interview, I believe she said something like wires were coming out yeah, of these Yeah, coming out with like a filaments. little fuzzy little thing sticking out of it. Yeah, the wires. It does sound organic, but there's more going on than a hollow ball with shavings inside. A lot of people were saying like, well, that's just the debris inside from, well, from chilling you know, it out. A lot of people, the same people that said it fell off the roof of a Volkswagen van on a fire road in the middle of nowhere, but hey, I don't know. Well, then it could have rolled a few, like 20 miles. Yeah, it could have rolled. But the thing is spot. with this ball, it might've rolled 20 miles. Well, that's what I'm saying. But if, you think somebody would have noticed it. If you're going with a VW van idea, <laughs> then you're back to the magic ball theory where it's like, well, it fell off on the highway, but then it rolled 30 miles. Right. To its resting spot, which again, the poor again, ball, like, it tried to keep up as long as it could. <laughs> here's, here's, oh, very nice National Lampoon reference. Here's what I'm saying: is that uh, I don't want to forget this point, and I might, even though I have it in the notes, it got there somehow. Yeah. So either a person did it, dropped it there, which is weird. Okay, wait. I want to say something about that. I'm yeah. so glad you brought that up, and it may just be because I've been watching the Americans for a few years now. Okay. And I'm a huge Always fan of the Americans. Yeah, it's a dead drop or whatever. It's important military technology. Yeah. Squirreled away from one of the nearby, like, 55 bases that are all around there. We got Mayport, yeah. we got Jacks, we got That's whatever. True. And someone stole it away, and they took it out there and dropped it off the fire road, and it was supposed to be picked up. But unfortunately, a microburst or some other natural fire happened, and it brought the Betts family out there, and they saw it before the pickup could be made. Wow, and that it was is, that's critical even further military, out there than the uh, alien theory. Crit that's yeah. critical military technology that was being left for someone to pick up. Come on, how far well, out is that? I mean, look, the Germans planted a dead body yeah, but on the no, beach. Uh, but like, yeah, but what we're talking about is that this is pre-GPS. It's kind of hard to find Well, yeah, before paces. GPS, we're talking go, about... Go 6,882 paces out to the spot in the middle of the woods where there's a microburst on the top well, yeah, of the tree. Well, yeah, if you're a spy, yeah, that's exactly what you do. Okay, let's just table that for we'll right now. We'll save it. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, this is Elena, and when I'm not listening to the Astonishing Legends podcast, I'm thinking about how hot Forrest's voice is. Hey, Forrest! All right, let's get back to the show. Back to the military thing, again, wrapping up the ideas about the x-rays, Yes, is that now I firmly believe there's more going on in the inside of this thing than what is described. And that to me actually makes more sense than this thing. If it really did do the actions, the motions it did, it makes more sense that there's more junk inside, shall we say, than a half inch of uh, high grade steel and a bunch of shavings that are ball shaped on the inside rolling around that are just punch outs or, or debris on the inside right. that, because then that's more magical. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> we're parsing different bits of logic here, but if it's going to do the things that it's going to do or report, and those are true, then I would expect more workings yeah. on the inside. Yeah. So that's what it appears that the x-rays are showing, which may have not been uh, intended to be seen by this family. Didn't they call and they were like, can we get those back? <laughs> I'm come sure back they and did. Them? They were, yeah, they're a little <laughs> insistent of like, uh, yeah, we just we just want to look at it yeah, for a little bit. Just can we, yeah. that folder, we didn't mean to. Yeah, look um, with your eyes, not with your hands. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. I'm going to get fired. I'm, I'm, I'm 19, I'm going to get fired. Those kind of things happen all the time. My relatives are all in the military and there's just tons of stories of goofy screw-ups that happen. There's just too many people operating and there's too many orders going around. And uh, sometimes things happen, uh, a lot of times things happen that are unintentional. Yes. But now that ends our one segment here of the military examination of the sphere, though, where they give it back and, hey, where's that sphere? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah there was a note to uh, send it back. Like, oh. Anyway, yeah, But now it gets examined and looked at by the academics. And there are really, I think, three scientists that play a pivotal role in the rest of this story up until the point that we're going to leave it at here. About these three scientists, I want to say one thing. One of them, a lot of you will have heard of because he is super, super famous in the circles of our listenership. Right. There are some of you that won't have heard of him, but we'll explain to you who he is. The next one is pretty close behind him in terms of fame. And then there's a third one that we're not convinced is a real person. Well, let's start <laughs> <laughs> Let's start with that one, uh, th that gentleman there. Yeah. Uh, that would be Dr. Carl Willison, or we mentioned him before, Wilson. It's with... either Wilson, Willison, or Williston, or Williston. Wilston. Yes, any of those versions. I don't think uh, he lived. Williston, that's one we see quite a bit. We'll just freeform it here. He is with an organization called the Omega Minus One Institute or a research facility stationed or located in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Attention producers of Stranger Things, 
Oh, if a you mega wanna... minus one. <laughs> well, that's like what was the? I don't even know what the name of that organization was. That well, I will say the like... minus one makes it, it. It adds a geeky charm to it, a nerdy <laughs> charm. Because if you just called it Omega, now it sounds like James Bond. It yeah, sounds like Spectre. We did look into Omega minus one as a name, and here's the thing that's interesting about it. And Forrest, I don't want to jump ahead here, so yeah, we're yeah. come back to this in a second. But I do want to say that it does relate to quantum physics. And, oh, of course, uh, an yeah. early discovery in quantum no, physics it, it, back in 1954. Yeah. So. So it's a real thing. It's not just made up to be like Station Base 4 or whatever. <laughs> well, um, here's, hey the thing is, is that this is all pre-internet, of course. Yeah. And just because you can't find something on the web nowadays doesn't mean it didn't exist or it was something else. It could have been sprung up and gone away. It's just hard to find. But the family members of the story are hard to find. Doesn't mean they don't exist. Yeah. Doesn't yeah. mean they're not who they say they are. So in this case, Omega Minus One and Dr. Carl have been quoted and reported in some of the news articles and uh, things written about them since then. So just to explain who they are, this is from the St. Petersburg Associated Press or UPI article. Jerry Betts said that an expert, a physicist, and again, this is listed as a physicist in general, but this has got to be Dr. Carl Williston, Williston, Wilson. Well, are we going to say those all three times? Let's just no, call no, him Williston yeah. from here on out. There we go. I was going to do that anyway. Anyway, from the Omega Minus One Institute, and I think it's an institute, based in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, had come out on Sunday to examine the sphere for at least six hours. That's a common part of that uh, story here. Is it's at least six hours of examination on Saturday, and I think this would be April 13th here if you're counting. One thing to note that this is all happening very fast since the discovery. It's not like a year later people show up. This is like uh, weeks within the news finding out, with them announcing it, within people showing up, and there's a frenzy. So this is quite a lot to endure in a short amount of time. Well, it's often reported that a one Dr. Carl Williston... Don't say all three names. No, no. <laughs> Wait, well, uh, no, no, it's gonna go with uh, what's the easiest? Let's one go to here? with the, let's go with Williston. I like Williston. Williston. There you go. Yeah. It's got the T and the. Yeah, yeah. If that is your real name, sir, <laughs> I uh, don't believe he existed. But he is likely, at least in this story here, the first scientist or researcher to contact the family and request to examine the ball. Now, we have put that question to the family. We're still waiting for an answer. Now, the answer that's come back preliminarily is that the name is familiar. That's but of course, right. this is a long time ago. And again, they're seeing a lot of people. And a you lot of remember, names, a lot of crazy people. Yeah, and people have, uh, have, have, a lot of people have shown up to look at it and have poked around with it. So we're trying to find out more of that. And if we can find out more about that, we'll let you know in part three. But for I, right now, it does seem to ring a bell with Jerry, I believe. Yes, and I just want to quickly add for those of you that are following along with this series, at home, we have received a considerable amount of correspondence between the family and various doctors and also people that are definitely not doctors mm -hmm. writing to them about the sphere and all kinds of philosophies and all that. And we're going to be sharing excerpts from those letters in part three of this series. Exactly. So basically it was a, a scientist had come out. I guess it could have been the first one could have been Hynek, Dr. J. Allen Hynek. But in a lot of the narratives of this story, it's Dr. Carl. I'm going to go with Dr. Carl because it just sounds fun. <laughs> anyway, he's the one who came out to kind of poke around with this thing for six hours. Now, what's interesting at the top of this here, before I describe what he found, is that real or not, these statements, whatever was put out to the media, has stuck. And so if he's not a real guy, this has made him real. 
these statements I'm about to read here or the findings. Are you uh, saying he's a tulpa? Uh, no, what I'm saying <laughs> is that you can you can put a story out in the media. It's like, oh, yeah. this guy existed. Where is he? Well, we don't know now. But he's he must be real because he came up with a lot of scientific sounding stuff. Well, Forrest, and I don't see this here in the outline, but it's something that you've brought up to me before. And I think it's a really valid point. When we were talking about it's a mammoth film in, you know, ah. dialogue's always wacky mm-hmm. with mammoth, but we do enjoy his films. It's the movie Spartan, yes. Val Kilmer. You were mentioning the point that mammoth makes in that film through the script about providing proof, a DNA proof, right? Well, and what does he yes. say? Here's the deal. In the movie, not to give it away, because again, he's going to accuse me of always giving away the ending. Yes, uh, you do. When, <laughs> In the movie, they're looking for somebody important, let's say, and the story comes up in the news that this person has ended up deceased. He finds out, like, I don't know, maybe that's not true. And the important part of the story is that somebody who questions that or puts that as not being true to him, and he says, well, how do you produce a dead body? How do you fake DNA? And this person responds, you don't have to fake DNA. You issue a press release. And the point behind that is that in that scenario, when it's an authority, nobody has to provide any proof. They could just say it, and people go with it. Because, hey, well, the government or somebody said that, and it sounds like they're an authority, but that sounds right to me. They don't have to come up with anything. They just have to make a statement that that's what happened. And not to give anything away here, but a lot of statements are being made with no actual proof being seen by authorities, not the family. I will make that clear. They're not claiming it does anything that they haven't shown people that it does. They're not claiming (laughs) anything. I want to reiterate, they never contacted the press. The press contacted them. That's that's right. They never asked for any money from this. Right. They have not sold the rights to it. Yeah. None of that. No, they don't need- They just want to know what it is. Yeah, they don't need the money, and certainly they're not selling tickets to this thing. And that certainly doesn't also put you in the wrong or under suspicion, although it does naturally with people. Like, you charge a dollar to everybody who wanted to come see this thing. That's not what's happening here. They want answers. So they are allowing certain scientific interests to take a look at this thing. And that's what this is here with the Omega Minus One Institute. It does sound a little James Bondy. Yeah. Anyway, and uh, they are located in Baton Rouge. Now, New Orleans, which supposedly, is Supposedly, yeah, well, as they, some people okay. say. Uh, well, this guy comes out to see them. Now, New Orleans, this will come up later, is 572 miles away by road. So it's a little over an eight-hour drive by car or a three-and-a-half-hour flight. And I don't know if that's uh, 1974 uh, jets. From where... The that is a, that's going to Fort George Island. Yeah. yeah. So I, I imagine you you land somewhere near there and you have to you have a drive in. But it's yeah. a long drive to come out and see this thing, if that's how he arrived. But it's been reported that Dr. Williston was the first scientist to take notice. But again, not contacted by the family. He just there's a lot of reports now in the news. It's right. getting out. This the word is getting out here. But you're wondering why are they interested? That they just love science in general? Uh, what's their point here, you know, other than to let's send a physicist out to take some measurements? Well, again, if the story is true, that's what happened. And if he examined the sphere, as he said, then it's reported that he independently confirmed some of the Navy or CPO Chris Berninger, the results that they presented. So that's interesting is that... CPO is Chief Petty Officer. Yes. So he's the liaison between the Navy, whoever the uh, scientists are We can't there. find him either, by the way. Really? Did you look? I've looked. That's interesting. As we've said to... Doesn't uh, mean anything. Somebody asked, yeah. somebody asked me earlier today, I was like, why are you on Ancestry? I was like, oh yeah, I'm super double gold platinum. <laughs> that's right, yeah. I can find anyone. Well, and, except uh, for him. And so can the Research Corps. It's a little while ago. Doesn't totally mean 
anything. Yeah. But it's yeah. interesting note to keep in mind. Most of the findings, though, do back up what the Navy has found. And so if it is a statement meant to be put out there for all eternity, then it does confirm it backs up the statements that the Navy has made. But they're not all that outrageous. Yeah. Because what the Navy is saying, even Berninger was uh, saying, like, you know, look, it looks man-made to us. Everybody has said it's weird. Everybody who's seen it in action has said it's weird. But they're not jumping to the thing as like, this it's a warhead for the Martians, whatever crazy thing. They're not saying any of that. They're just saying, like, we're not sure what it is. We're, yeah. we're not sure it's ours. It has some characteristics that defy logic. One of them is that it has multiple magnetic poles. Yeah. Yes, yeah. We've had a discussion with the research corps about this, specifically Dr. Chris Cogswell. You know, he was saying things can have multiple poles if they're melted down together and it can appear to have it. And he also said that our understanding of magnetism is kind of a recent development. Yeah, that was interesting too. Yeah, Yeah. and that Mm -hmm. was not something I understood. So we have to take it with a grain of salt. But they did say that it had multiple magnetic poles. And at the time, they said that that was physically impossible. And on top of that, they said that the fields of magnetism were non-concentric. And so that's something that's interesting. According to the Ottawa Citizen newspaper in Ottawa, Canada, Dr. Williston calls the weird magnetic pattern a mind bender. Quote, he said, because the flux density of the field fluctuated in potency based on an as yet unidentified pattern, thereby defying the known laws of physics. Pretty wow statement from a guy who doesn't exist. Yes, um, yeah, and also I can't say flux in a sentence without mentioning the flux, flux capacitor. capacitor. I, yeah, yeah, yeah I have to. Yes, of course. But the <laughs> idea, though, is that uh, this thing is displaying properties that I'm not sure we can explain that now because they seem to change. And I just want to say this because I learned this from uh, Dr. Cogswell. The flux density, whenever you see that picture of the Earth that shows the Earth's magnetic field, and you see the donut that makes up the Mm -hmm. magnetic field, and where at the North Pole and the South Pole, the lines are going down into the poles, the flux density is how dense the magnetic fields are going into those poles. Yes. So this thing possibly is changing that magnetic potency on its own for whatever purpose. And, and it's fluctuating. Uh, yeah, and as we're going along, we're just throwing out ideas. But yeah. the, the magnetic attraction and repulsion action, maybe it's using that to propel itself somehow. Like maglev trains or whatever. There's a little toy that uh, Scott's son has, and it's a spinning orb, and it's like held aloft by the magic of magnetism. Okay, I repellent. just, yeah, this is a speaker. This is so cool. It's is a it, speaker. A speaker? Oh, yeah, it's that. like a Bluetooth speaker. Oh, it plays music. Wow. But it floats. It's one of those things that floats on a thing, and on top of that, it spins a little bit. Not necessarily doesn't have to spin, but yeah. the main thing is that it's suspended in midair. This was a gift, by the way, to my son from one Miss Paula Pell. Oh, Devil in the Diner. Yes, uh, noted comedy writer on Saturday Night Live for decades and film writer and also, actually, she was our very first interview guest. That Uh, is true, yes. Devil in the Diner was our eighth or ninth episode, but she was the first person we interviewed. We actually recorded her before we did any other episode, even though we released it later. That is is right, and she gives the best gifts. Yes, she does. Especially to your son. Anyway, the idea though is like, No, it looks like it's magic, right? If you didn't know what was going on. Yeah. But it's the magnetic repulsion, but it's also being kept in place. So it's not spinning off somewhere. So in this case, though, you can spin it. The magnets are keeping it propelled. It will keep going indefinitely as long as it has an electric current applied to the device, to the base of it. Yes. Okay. This thing, maybe in the way it's able to change its magnetic flux and the fluctuation of the fluxing, uh, it has something to do with its own propulsion. Just putting it out there. 
So Dr. Williston goes on to say, quote, he was unable to determine a pattern in the movement of the ball itself or explain how that was even possible. It's interesting, again, if this guy's not real, he's saying, like, I ain't even talking about the alien space ball aspect of this, but it's displaying some very weird, unnatural kind of actions. And so he's put it out there, and that kind of stuck. Because, again, he's noted as going on to say that the metal that made up the shell of the sphere was like stainless steel, but it also contained an unknown element that made it slightly different from stainless steel. I go back to my thing about people stating stuff in reports. The Navy coming out and saying like, well, it's alloy 431, very high quality, very dense, very hard, used in marine and aviation applications, and that's what it is. Did we see the tests? Did we see a report? Because that's a statement. That's a right. press release. Right. You're just saying it's alloy 431. No one's really gone into a public available report to see that that's really what it was or an independent test because this other independent test here, which Dr. Carl's doing, he's saying, well, it's like stainless steel, but there's some elements in there which don't really make it seem like it's actual stainless steel. So it's an alloy, but he's saying there's some very unusual properties to it. It's not totally alloy 431. One of the other things that Williston had said was he had found radio waves coming from the sphere and a magnetic field around it. And he claimed that it was made out of metal, but it contained traces of an unknown element, as Forrest was just talking yeah, about, yeah. which made it a little different from ordinary stainless right, steel. Right. Now, at the time of this recording, the name Dr. Carl Williston is familiar to Jerry Betts, but we're waiting to see if she remembers anything more about him or his institution. Yeah, the, as we said, we run that question by her, and what yeah. we got back is like, well, it's familiar. Yeah, we're talking about 50 years ago. Yeah, so yeah. it's like, and it's, it's like, who's that guy? Did yeah. he show up? Maybe he was here at the house for the day. So as memories are being jogged, it wasn't totally out of the blue. So that's an interesting sign with Jerry, anyway. Yes. Is that, yeah, it kind of sounds familiar, but she's going to have to go over her notes. There's some other uh, documents we can check that the family have that may have documented his arrival or not. But this is an interesting small set of data relayed by a possibly fictitious or real institution, which again comes back to saying like, yeah, it displays a lot of ball-like properties, but this is kind of weird stuff. This is not normal. All right, so as we enter the last phase of our discussion tonight, we are talking about the increased interest and examinations by academic individuals and institutions. And what more hallowed one than the American supermarket tabloid institution of the National Enquirer? I don't think you're using the word hallowed right there. Oh, there's stuff in the inside. Oh, yeah. hallowed. No, no. <laughs> I meant hallowed, and that's very well respected. If yes. you're waiting for your groceries to be rung up, look, it's a tabloid but every country has them, and we certainly have our tradition. When Back to the days of the, of the <laughs> 70s, when this was in its prime stride here. Yeah. Of course, now it's the butt of jokes, but we've brought this up before. Every once in a while, they'll get a real scoop. We go right back to that hilarious scene in the uh, Men in Black movie when he's like, we got <laughs> we to gotta check the rags or whatever. Yeah. And they go, and it's like, this is where we get our best information. Hey, what is the parallel? Well, that is you exactly know, my point here. This is precisely what was happening right here. You may throw this baby of uh, Dr. J. Allen Hynek and anything to do with aliens or extraterrestrial investigation out the window, but there are real smart people, genuine scientists, and 
connected with government organizations that are studying this phenomena, like with Project Blue Book, to see if this is real, this is a real threat, on the outside even. So you may not believe in this, but other people were taking this very seriously. The National Enquirer was getting these folks together for what they called their Blue Ribbon Panel to investigate the phenomenon and provide some money if somebody found something. Because, of course, they're selling more newspapers if they do or just suspect it. But what's funny is that this thing, which might be seen as a joke, was involving real people in the field and a real getting together in a way was kind of a serious study done by this paper that's not taken that seriously yeah but every once in a while like i said you trip onto stuff and it doesn't seem real it's like no guess what that turned out to be real and the national Enquirer scooped it well in this case we want to explain what this panel was a little bit here and rob morphy who did a great comprehensive article on uh, this phenomenon and the story. Rob did one of the best blog entries on the Betsphere that's out there. Yeah, well, it, covers, uh, yeah. it does cover a lot. Yes, and, uh, and, and all, and the, all the other research we could find, it seemed like, was plagiarized from his blog entry. <laughs> uh, they're, they're, yeah, they, they, took, they took a lot from it. I mean, that came out in 2012. Yeah. He went to a lot of different sources because you have to go through a lot of, uh, like I said, the Rob, top our of the... hats off to you on your research, oh, absolutely. by the way. Yes. We're knit, very knit impressed. Yes. He yes. and his cohorts wear a lot of, like, the Cryptodot podcast, they all wear knit hats. I yeah. think it's because they're Canadian or they're up there. It's very cold. <laughs> he checked a lot of sources, a lot of newspaper articles, because there's not a lot out there. On That's why case. we were very lucky, yeah, to talk to people that were witnessing it. But here is what Rob reports. And I've seen this in other places, so I don't know if they're taking it from him, but I would tend to trust this account here, is that what he was saying is that there are members or a member of ARPO. Can I tell you something? The, yeah. You know something I had to fix in the first episode What's of this? What's that? Show? You said APRO <laughs> like three times. <laughs> it's yes. the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization. Yes, my apologies for that. It just sounds better to me. APRO. Bro, ARPO. APRO. ARPO. ARPO. Yeah. First of all, it's not around anymore, right? The uh, Aerial Phenomena Research Organization. MUFON was born from them. Yes, eventually they morphed, but it was a... Re- APRO. Or- yes, the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, taken very seriously yeah. as an independent body of study and researchers and data collection... There's some reports by them still around, like on the internet, you can find. Uh, But yeah, they took it very seriously. And they told the family that they may have a piece of extraterrestrial technology in their possession, and they might be eligible to win the National Enquirer's $50,000 contest to prove that alien life exists. Yes. So that was a real contest. Yes. Now, I didn't actually check to see if anybody won the $50,000 in the history of it. Nobody did. But they put it out there. So uh, you got to cough it up if they, you get something really so They extreme. never intended to give away $50,000. Well, that's what we're going to find out here. Maybe yes, maybe no. Well, to describe what this National Enquirer contest was like back in the mid-70s, we found a cool website that lists some email exchanges between Bob Pratt and and Jerry Cohen. Now, Bob Pratt, being a longtime UFO researcher and reporter, and he did reporting for the Inquirer. Anyway, this email is from (laughs) Bob to Jerry from June of 2002, and I want to read from it because it kind of explains what that National Inquirer panel, especially their blue ribbon panel stunt, I guess. Well, it wasn't a stunt. They really did it. But what were they doing with UFOs and the study of it? So now this is what Bob is saying to Jerry. The Inquirer had what we called a blue ribbon UFO panel, that's in quotes, consisting of four or five PhDs and a, quote, mini panel, unquote, composed of the heads of NICAP, 
APRO, and MUFON. John Schusler represented MUFON instead of Walt Andrus. Walt is somebody we mentioned in part one as somebody who contacted Jerry, remember? Because yeah. Walter Andrus was the head of MUFON. So he sent John Schusler because Walt and Jim Lorenzen despised each other. And I think Jim Lorenzen was the head of APRO. That just goes to show you, when you get into belief here over stuff that many people think is imaginary to begin with. Uh, if you believe any of yeah, this. Yeah, right. There's a lot of heated discussions and they butt heads and what they think is real and what it sh- you know how they should go about studying it. We based a whole podcast on that. Well, we, <laughs> we've experienced it ourselves with uh, people we know not agreeing with certain organizations. And so he goes on to describe the other members, Leo Sprinkle, Jim Harder, remember that name, Frank Salisbury, Dr. Hynek, John Warren, and at least two other fellows whose names I can't remember were members of the Blue Ribbon panel at various times. Dr. Hynek was a member when I got involved, but he dropped out a year or two later after he became convinced that the Inquirer wasn't too interested in funding research. By that time, he and I felt we could level with each other, and he asked my advice on whether he should stay on the panel. I told him I didn't think the Inquirer was serious about funding any research, and he quit the panel. He had agreed to participate in the beginning in the hope that the Inquirer would provide some research funds. It certainly could have afforded to do so. In parentheses here, it would spend great gobs of money to get stories of all kinds, closed parentheses, but the publisher, Gene Pope, wasn't all that interested. And this is a reply from Jerry Cohen. Oh, this is the other people that were on the panel. U.S. Supreme Court Justice and Attorney General Tom C. Clark and former New York Court of Appeals Judge Francis Bergen. And he goes on to say, I remember the panel. Evidently, Lorenzen, Acuff, and Schusler were screening cases, then passing them on to the judges for their final decision. This is like cases of people presenting what they thought were ailing contact or evidence. Right. That shows you how it's working here. Yes. They would screen them. They would pass them up. They're going to decide in a final decision. He goes on to say, so you seem to be saying there were other cases coming in besides theirs. I remember it starting at 1,000, then grew to 1 million. If both judges approved the award, the Inquirer was saying it was willing to give $1 million to the person or persons who supplied the evidence. Now, in those days, the Inquirer was offering $1 million to anyone who could prove that UFOs came from outer space. This is Bob talking still. Yes. Mm -hmm. The Blue Ribbon Panel was formed to determine whether any case provided that proof. The panel would get together at least once a year to assess the best cases of the previous year. None, of course, proved UFOs were from outer space, but the Inquirer also paid five to $10,000 to those witnesses involved in the case of the year that provided the best scientific evidence of the reality of UFOs, or something to that effect. That was the main task of the panel, choosing the best case. The mini-panel, consisting of representatives of the three main UFO organizations, would meet once or twice a year with me and my editor to help select those cases that would be considered by the big panel. No one got paid anything, but the Inquirer took care of all arrangements and all expenses for visits to South Florida or wherever the panel would meet, such places as New York, Salt Lake City, Las Vegas, and even Mexico City. All right, well, there you go. It explains what the purpose was. I mean, I'd heard of it, of course, growing up. Like I said, I'd be, you know, standing in the line with parents or grandparents. It's like, oh, that's cool. It's like, you're not buying that. It's still a tabloid. Uh, But they were offering serious money, at least up front on the outset here. So that's what got these very serious men interested in participating. They could take some of this money or the Inquirer would at least fork up the money 
to fund their research, which is kind of telling in a weird way. But there's some other dignitaries here, academic, that are on the panel. Dr. R. Leo Sprinkle was a University of Wyoming psychologist who had studied the abduction phenomenon extensively in the 1960s. And he might be the first guy to suggest a link between abductions and cattle mutilations. Yes. There you go. Frank B. Salisbury was a biologist or plant physiologist. Dr. Robert F. Cregan was chairman of the new Department of Philosophy at State College Albany, which was a unit of the State University of New York. So there are some academic dignitaries on this panel in, in a varied degrees. Philosophy is kind of fun, but there are some heavyweights here in the field that are willing to yes, do this. Yeah. You know, again, you have to be finding people that are willing to put their names out there. A lot <laughs> of them won't because right. that just taints you forever. So as Rob describes it, on March 12th of 1972, the publication offered an award of $10,000 for, quote, the best scientific evidence of the reality of UFOs and $50,000 to, quote, the first person who can prove that an unidentified flying object came from outer space and is not a natural phenomenon, unquote. This already bountiful sum was raised to $1 million by 1976. So he's echoing here what Bob Pratt said. Yes. All right, so this is a little information just basically on uh, APRO. The Tapper, aerial, not ARPO. But it is the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization. So that was led by Jim and Coral Lorenzen. That was the guy who had trouble with Walt Andrus from earlier. Right. Some bad blood there. But they had some interesting people associated. Those in the UFO know will know the name James McDonald. But another was James Harder. He's going to come up again as the third or one of the three interesting and connected scientists to this story. Again, he was a civil and hydraulic engineering professor and then later professor emeritus at the University of California, Berkeley. So he's no slouch, but he was director of research from 1969 to 82. They were renowned. McDonald and Harder were just among the six scientists who testified about UFOs before the U.S. House of Representatives Committee on Science and Astronautics in 68. Astronomer J. Allen Hynek cited APRO and NICAP as really the two best civilian UFO groups of their time. So of the people in this field that are respected, these are respected institutions. That's to make the point that whatever you believe about the National Enquirer, they got the heavyweights in this field at the time together to judge the best stories. Yes. And that's where our sphere comes in. You know what's super interesting about the National Enquirer, by the way? It's the fact that they're based in Lantana, yeah. Florida. So Rob Morphy actually reminded us that up until this point, the only person that had ever won anything from the Enquirer was Darrell Johnson and his family who were involved in a renowned trace evidence UFO case known as the Delphus Ring. That's right. Snowball. Delphus. Yes, Snowball Ronnie. the dog. We and got Ronnie. It, if you're new to our show and you're wondering why we're pontificating on that, it's because we actually covered the Delphus Ring already. That's right. A couple yeah. of years ago. It was, it was fascinating. That was a good case of actual trace evidence. Yes. And, and residue. And, yeah. And, and the kid, Ronnie, had seen the UFO and the ring that was left behind, and Darrell, yeah. his dad, they took some photos, which won them $5,000 for, quote, scientifically valuable evidence on UFOs, end quote. Now, Ronnie, I would like to add, and Ronnie, if you're out there and you're listening, it's okay. My feelings are not hurt. <laughs> He's not, it's all, it's all, he He's agreed not to an yeah. interview and did not pick up the phone when I called. Well, that, He was the first interview subject that 
dissed me super hard. <laughs> That's the... So uh, we didn't get that interview. But he is a good representation of somebody having to live with a story all their lives and being sick and tired of talking about no, it. No, and I totally get that That's now what, because yeah. Ronnie, you know, at the time he was a teenager. I think by the time we reached out to him, he was in his 60s, maybe 70. He'd been a farmer his whole life. Yeah. Probably sick of talking about it. And it's something we understand now more than we ever did when yeah. we started the show. Well, I mean, when you meet more people who these I things kind of happen to, that's my point. <laughs> of th You may think that's not going to happen to me. Guess what? That's what all these people think. They never think anything like that is ever going to happen to them. They all think that. Just like you out there listening now, that's crazy. Nothing like that will ever happen to me. Not going to happen to you until it does. And on that note, we're going to get to our last interview segment for tonight. So J. Allen Hynek gets involved. He starts becoming close to the family. He comes out more than once, finally gets the test results back that I told you about earlier that he had done, the filings that were done. He's just blown away by it, and he wants to be around it, and he wants to be a part of things. We get a message from the government was involved and some scientists, and Dr. Hynek said, hey, I'll be your liaison. They wanted to get a blue ribbon panel together, and National Enquirer had some part in it, which anytime you put the word yeah. National Enquirer yeah. into anything immediately, it just reeks of everything bad. But I guess at the time, they were as close to legit as they've ever been, and they were trying to get these, this panel of people together. They were going to sponsor it. And there were government officials. There were scientists. Dr. Hynek was there. Dr. Harder from Berkeley was there, several other people. They took the ball. The way it got down there, Terry flew down on a plane that was, I think, chartered by maybe the National Enquirer, I can't remember, flies him down with the ball. He goes into the meeting. When Terry's transporting the ball, does it have a little case? Did you guys build a case for it? We got a bowling ball bag. Okay, yeah, that makes okay. sense. Yeah. Yeah. And that was back when you could apparently walk through the metal detectors with a ball yeah. and nobody questioned you. <laughs> right, like, right. Okay. from another planet. Yeah, right. oh, it's, it's just a ball? Sure, oh, no problem. So, yeah, he had a bowling ball bag. Okay. So he takes it down. They go to the meeting. It was really an impressive get-together. I mean, these were legit scientists and people from the military. NASA had some people there. And that was the other thing. We were getting contacted from NASA very regularly. Okay had people come to the house, people that when they came to the house, they gave you that weird vibe, like these people aren't who they say they are. I mean, it was just very kind of men in blackish, as weird as that sounds. Sure. It doesn't sound weird it to us. It doesn't sound weird to <laughs> us, believe me. <laughs> well, and people offering a lot of money for the ball and, and remind me to come back to that because this is one of the reasons why we kind of disappeared later. Okay. So Terry goes to this meeting. They have all these scientists there and they ask him, they said, hey, can it do anything weird? And so Terry was showing them, he set it down and they had a piece of plexiglass that was kind of propped at an angle, so it probably went up three or four inches, and the ball just rolled up the plexiglass right in front of all these people. They filmed it. People were standing around. They were shocked. I mean, it rolled uphill from a dead standstill and then came back down and stopped, and they were just like, oh, my God, what just happened? And everyone saw it, and then it would start to vibrate sometimes, and one guy referred to it as it was like a Mexican jumping beam, which I never saw it jump, but I did see it vibrate. Uh -huh. It would vibrate. It was doing something. You could see the vibrations visually? It wasn't oh, just feeling yeah. it? You could see it and you could like, hear it. Once in a while, those little balls would ping when you would hear yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. So, Terry, um, he gets called aside by someone who says, your mother just called. There's been an accident. You need to get home right now. So, Terry's panicked. He tries to call home, and all he's thinking is... All right, we've had weird people showing up in our yard. We've had stuff going on. What's happened? He tries to call home. He can't get through. We don't have any neighbors to call. He's trying to call everybody he can think of to get through, and he can't get through. Everybody's lines are busy, so he just gets on a flight. They said, look, we can get you back home 
let's go. He gets home, he walks in the house, and Jerry looks at him and she goes, what are you doing here? He goes, I, I was told there's been an accident. Well, I, I came home as fast as I could. She said, where's the ball? He said, I left it, because they were in the middle of doing all the you know interview stuff. She said, Terry, there was no accident. You need to get back now. So then it was, okay, what do we do? Now we're starting to feel like, all right, this isn't just people curious about this thing. This is starting to get a little creepy. She has her two oldest daughters get in the family car and drive back to where this thing was going on. Terry gets on another flight and flies down. He tries to get in, can't get in that day. They stay in a hotel. The next day, there's another big exposition with everyone there. And he walks in, and they won't let him up to the front of the room. They won't let him near it. And it's Navy guys that are there, and they're just saying, not right now. The tests are going on, and we can't have you up there. Well, once people realize Terry's in the room, one of the reporters says, hey, is there something that the ball does that's really interesting that you can show us? And he stands there for a second. He goes, oh, yeah, let me show you something. You're not going to believe this. He walks over, he picks up, and walks out with it. I mean, what are you going to do? To tackle him in front of all these reporters and everything? And it was just mass pandemonium. He leaves. He walks around the back. People are scattering everywhere. He gets in the car with his sisters, and they take off. That's going to wrap up part two of our three-part series on the Beth Sphere. Join us next week for the third and final part with the rest of the interview and our conclusions. Please remember to support our sponsors. They keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. F as in Frank. R A. N as in Nancy. K L I E. Descended from Benjamin Franklin's brother, James Franklin. Hey, Forrest! Our show is edited by Sarah Wendell, and our theme, which is available as a ringtone, is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The Ark and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also find us at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends if you'd like to support the show in that way. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. Good night.